to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing good. Got a lot of errands done today. It's a beautiful October day. Yeah, there's blue sky and sun's out and... Crunchy you know. leaves wherever you go. Right, yeah. It's, it's really a nice, beautiful, gorgeous day, which... Is nice. Yeah, it helps a lot. Yeah. Well, what are we watching today? Well, today, Sarah, we have a big treat because we are back over at RKO with producer Val Luton and his film The Body Snatcher from Hmm. 1945. It's been a while since we've had Luton on the show. Exactly. And so to properly tell the story of The Body Snatcher, we kind of have to go back in time a little bit to find Val Luton where we left him last at RKO. So, to recap, in 1942, uh, along with director Jacques Tourneur, he created Cat People, which grossed $4 million on a $134,000 budget. So, big success. Now, before that film was even released, the two had filmed I Walked with a Zombie, which, when it came out, also did tremendous business on a budget of less than $150,000. The Leopard Man, the first to be released after the success of Cat People, continued the successful trend. Before The Leopard Man was released, Luton continued on with editor-turned-director Mark Robeson on The Seventh Victim, Mm -hmm. uh, while Tourneur was promoted by RKO to A-Pictures. Unfortunately, The Seventh Victim was the first real flop to come out of the Val Luton horror unit. Yeah, I mean, like, they had been kind of steadily going down after the success of Cat People. Mm-hmm. And that film left critics unimpressed and audiences confused. Yes. By then, uh, Luton and Robeson were already shooting Ghost Ship, uh, a film that was made to keep crew employed waiting for actors to free up for the sequel Curse of the Cat People, Mm -hmm. which shot on and off from August to November 1943 uh, due to reshoots that were required when the first director was let go and replaced with Robert Wise, one of RKO's top editors. In the case of both Robeson and Wise, Luton had kind of been essential in lifting them up from editors to directors. Yeah, definitely. Meanwhile, Luton was eager to break out of the horror genre, and had been experimenting sort of within the box that RKO had given him, first with Ghost Ship, and then with Curse of the Cat People. Yeah, Ghost Ship, we determined, was not a horror, and Curse of the Cat People is a very unique, forward-thinking horror. Yes, and we sort of determined that Curse of the Cat People was horror from like a very specific demographic point of view, that it was, yes. it was a horror movie for children. So in a September issue of Look Magazine, Luton's attention came upon an article called Are These Our Children? about the problem of juvenile delinquency in America, which was growing during the Second World War due to many fathers being off at war and moms being, you know, employed, working in the factories, leaving these kids, uh, you know, unsupervised. The first generation of latchkey kids. Right, exactly. The resulting film, titled Youth Run Wild, shot (laughs) from November to December 1943, under director Mark Robeson, 
and was sort of a combination exploitation propaganda docudrama. Ben and I watched this, not for the show, but just for fun, because we're nerds, and it's not good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, RKO was nervous about portraying problems in American society during wartime, uh, just due to, like, concerns about morale and how the country was portraying itself. And so the film was subjected to continual reshoots and re-edits under studio mandate. Meanwhile... Ghost Ship opened in theaters in December 1943, but despite initial good showings, it was pulled from release in February as the result of a plagiarism lawsuit. Right, I remember that, yeah. Meanwhile, Curse of the Cat People, Luton's most expensive RKO picture to date at $212,000, was released in March of '44 to mixed reviews and confused audiences who were expecting a horror sequel and instead got a nostalgic tale about the power of childhood imagination. Mm -hmm. Late in that month, Luton finally got the chance to produce a real passion project, Mademoiselle Fifi, based on the short stories of Guy de Maupassant and starring Simone Simone and directed by Robert Wise. Ben and I also watched this. It's actually pretty good. Set in late 19th century France, it was Wise's first solo film as a director, and it was made for $200,000, which is, you know, high for a Luton movie, but absurdly low for a period costume drama. The film attempted to serve as allegory for Nazi-occupied France at the time, with its story of Prussian-occupied France, But the liberation of Paris by Allied forces a month after the film's premiere in the summer of 1944 cut the legs out from under a film that had already suffered from a misleading marketing campaign. So, a string of kind of misses for Luton at RKO is sort of what we're seeing here. Yeah, you you can say flop. Like, they, (laughs) they flopped. Meanwhile, horror star Boris Karloff was fed up. After three years on stage performing in the play Arsenic and Old Lace, Karloff was lured back to Universal Studios with the promise of starring roles. However, House of Frankenstein was the last straw for Karloff at the studio, feeling that the film was ridiculous and that Universal's horror in general and the Frankenstein series in particular had become trite and shallow. Karloff abandoned ship. I mean, he's not wrong. If you look at where Universal Horror started in the 30s, Mm -hmm. yeah. It was a risky move, however, and I think one of the things that had drawn Karloff to come back to Universal after he had abandoned them in 1939 was the fear that after three years on the stage, he wasn't going to be able to, like, get back into movie roles again. Yeah. And, you know, Universal was here offering him easy, guaranteed work. Uh, And to turn that down requires either, you know, a lot of guts on an actor's part or for that studio to have uh, really fucked up. (laughs) <laughs> little from column A, little from column B. Meanwhile, Luton was in troubled waters at RKO, and he needed a hit. Something that was back in his dependable horror genre, uh, since his attempts to kind of break out had not gone well. Luton came up with an idea based on the Isle of the Dead paintings by Arnold Brocklin, uh, to be directed by Mark Robeson. And he reached out to Karloff, who was drawn to the intellectual sensibilities of Luton's scripts. 
Absolutely. Shooting on Isle of the Dead began in summer of 1944, but Karloff required back surgery for a chronic arthritic condition, and the project was placed on hold while Karloff recovered from his surgery. In September of 1944, Youth Runs Wild was finally released. It was not well received and lost money for the studio. Because it's real bad. Karloff had recuperated by October, but by this time, the cast of Isle of the Dead was occupied elsewhere and could not be reassembled until mid-November. So, Luton and Karloff decided to make another movie while they waited. The Body Snatcher, based on the story by Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah. We've talked about Robert Louis Stevenson in the past mm-hmm. on the show. In the um, Jekyll and Hyde episodes. Yeah, probably most significantly the... 1931 Jekyll and Hyde episode, which is episode 27, but I do a little bit of a recap in the 41 Jekyll and Hyde episode, uh, number 87, but, you know, here's a bit of a, a Coles Notes version for what you probably need to know for the body snatcher. For sure. Robert Louis Stevenson was born in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1850 on November 13th. I checked, it was a Wednesday, not a Friday. <laughs> and while... His mother's side of the family had, was gentry, so he was born into a very well-to-do family. He did inherit ill health from his mother and maternal grandfather, who were both prone to coughing fits. Um, so he had a very sick childhood, uh, suffering from many miscellaneous lung illnesses. Sure. While often sick in bed, his nanny would read the Bible to him. He became accustomed to a pretty solitary childhood because of these frequent illnesses, resulting in having more private tutors than attending regular school. With this solitary time came a lot of reading, narrating stories to his nanny and his mother, and writing his own stories. I mentioned that his mother's side was gentry. His dad's side was a long line of lighthouse engineers. Oh, okay. Um, Like, that's the family business. So even though Robert's father, Thomas Stevenson, helped publish Robert's first story at age 16, everyone was a little disappointed when Robert was like, I'm, I'm going to be an artist. Right. <laughs> I'm going to be an author. Not when a lighthouse engineer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, both the mom and the dad were, quote, greatly disappointed. Mm. So they came up with a compromise for Stevenson to study law rather than letters. Stevenson would qualify for the Scottish Bar Exam in 1875 and would pass, but he never practiced. While traveling for his health, Stevenson would write novels, short stories, travelogues, and other nonfiction. Though some of his most famous works are Treasure Island, published in 1883, The Strange Case of Jekyll and Hyde in 1886, and Kidnapped in 1886, Uh, Today we are covering his short story, The Body Snatcher, which was first published in 1884 in the December Christmas edition of the Paul Mall Gazette, which was an evening paper. So he wrote this before Jekyll and Hyde? Correct. Okay. And The Body Snatcher would later be collected in the 1905 collection of some other short stories titled Tales and Fantasies uh, that was published posthumously. So the characters in The Body Snatcher are based on the real-life surgeon Robert Knox and his relationship to uh, two murderers known as Burke and Hare. 
Sorry, a surgeon and his relationship with two murderers? And now we enter the spin-off of Scream Scene, titled Scream Scene Serial. Right, this is it's time for the true crime section of the podcast. Exactly. Robert Knox taught anatomy in Edinburgh, Scotland. He was a leader in the field and was actually responsible for the theory of transcendental anatomy, which is the theory that um, uh, your anatomy comes from a divine kind of purpose. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I I can buy that in the context of this culture and time. Uh, Knox does have some, like, cool letters with Darwin discussing the the different theories, but um, that's not relevant here, so I'm not going into it. So we would have called this guy, like, an intelligent design supporter if he was around today. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. To teach anatomy, you need corpses. Mm -hmm, For dissection. And to teach according to what was known as the French method, you would need around one corpse or cadaver per student. Right, so that the students can each do their own dissections and and figure shit out themselves. Exactly. Now, to get a cadaver to dissect Mm -hmm. for medical purposes, according to the Murder Act of 1752 the person needed to be condemned to death and dissection. So you can only get bodies through executions. Okay, sure. By around the 1810s, more people are enrolling to study medicine and therefore anatomy, and executions are going down. Right. So there's a supply and demand issue coming up. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, medicine is becoming an actual real field where people aren't just making shit up, and because of that, you actually need education in order to do it. But also... (laughs) <laughs> we're, uh, you know, less people are dying because medicine's getting better. And so, yeah. No, it's execution specifically. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because of the supply and demand issue, body snatching became very common in the sense of, like, you read in the paper that Mary down the street has died. So when no one's looking overnight, you go and, like, get her body before she's buried or get her body after she's freshly buried and sell it to the medical students. There's an episode of um, Justin and Sidney McElroy's podcast, Sawbones, that's about these guys called the Resurrection Men. Yeah, th- those are body snatchers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a fun fun name of, for them. Yeah, Justin thought that, like, there needed to be a movie about the Resurrection Men. <laughs> uh, that would be this movie. Yeah. Justin, if you were listening, that would be amazing, but also watch this movie. Body snatching was actually so common that people would hire others to watch over the body of the deceased until burial. Hmm. Now, in November 1827, William Hare uh, discovered a lodger of his had died. That sucks. Yeah. So he went to his friend William Burke... Um, I also like to have friends who are the same name as me. (laughs) It just makes everything easier. (laughs) Um, And they came up with a plan to basically sell the body to Robert Knox. They were paid £7.10, shillings, which, I looked up, is just under £1,000 today. Okay, so like two grand in like Canadian money. Yes, like a lot of money. Mm -hmm. They were paid a lot of money for this. Um, So it's a pretty good racket. So Hare and his pal Burke started murdering people (laughs) and conducted up to 16 further transactions 
with Knox. I can see how, like, you make that leap. Like, everybody's snatching bodies. Like, someone dies, you go in, you steal the body, right? Yeah, let's just cut out the middleman. Exactly. Just, yeah. <laughs> just murder folk. So the pair were caught. Um, now, William Hare, despite kind of being the mastermind, turned on Burke for immunity. I mean, that's what makes you the mastermind. <laughs> Burke was hanged and dissected in public. Ironic! Yes. Hare, it was covered in the newspapers that he was granted immunity. Uh, he tried to go with a different identity to get to different towns, and people were following him and throwing, like, raw food at him. Right. Um, but eventually he did, like, kind of fade into the ether of history. Mm. Uh, now, did... Robert Knox... Yeah. ...was not persecuted... Because it was determined that how should he know where the bodies are coming from? Right, yeah. Good defense. Yeah. So while that was the court's decision, the public was pretty upset about it. Um, A mob actually showed up at his house and, like, threw rocks through his windows. He did eventually resign from his uh, post at the university, and he would leave to teach in England and abroad. (laughs) The idea that, like... Oh, the mob's getting too strong. I guess I'll go from, you know, Scotland to faraway England where no one knows where <laughs> who I am. So these murders took place in um, 1827. The trial was 1828. There had been calls for public officials to do something about the body snatching issue. Um, but no one really, like... Was going to was willing to campaign on body snatching. Sure, you know, um, but this case in 1828 swayed public opinion and would lead to the Anatomy Act of 1832, which finally said, you know, cadavers don't need to just come from executions. Bodies can be donated as long as the relatives agree. Mm. Further, you need to be a licensed teacher to um, manage cadaver usage. Only those people who are licensed can take custody of cadavers, um, track and monitor every cadaver that's needed and used for dissection. Right. So, given that this is kind of a watershed case um, for Scottish law, it's incredibly likely that Stevenson studied it during his education. Right. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty clear that he was very familiar with it because the plot of The Body Snatcher... Uh, directly calls out Robert Knox. Okay. <laughs> so the plot of the short story is um, there's a, a Dr. Fetz, and he's out at a bar hanging out with some friends, and a Dr. Wolf McFarlane comes in, and Fetz basically yells at him and says, get out of here. Turns out they were both students at the same medical school under the anatomy professor Robert Knox. Oh. The two were responsible for receiving dead bodies from the criminals for Knox. Oh. So kind of like, you know, the the people signing the delivery papers. Yeah, they worked in shipping and receiving for the murdered people. Yeah. Which, I mean, I get it. As a TA, sometimes you do, like, the dirty work the prof doesn't want to do. Yeah. So during this time when they were med students... Fetz identified one corpse that they received as someone he had met in passing, and so he concludes that she's been murdered. But McFarlane convinces him not to go to the police, 
lest they both go to jail and are implicated in the crime. Right. A little bit later, um, McFarlane and Fetz are hanging out at the bar, and this man named Gray is uh, just really rude to them. Just a real jerk. And this man mysteriously turns up as a dissection sample. Huh. And it's at this point that Fetz is like, fuck, McFarlane murdered Gray. What are we going to do? And McFarlane says, don't tell anyone about it, otherwise you might become a dissection sample as well. Mm. So Fetz helps McFarlane destroy the body, kind of cover up the evidence, turn it into, like, dissection things. You know, an arm, a leg, you know. So this situation continues, and when Knox needs some more bodies, Fetz and McFarlane are directed to go dig up a recently buried woman. Fetz and McFarlane dig up the woman in the dark, um, but while they're driving back, they begin to feel uneasy about who this person is. Some things are just not quite lining up. So when they look into the back of the car, um, they see that it's actually Gray, whom they had thought destroyed. What? Yep. The end. <laughs> what? I th- so I think the whole thing is your guilt will always follow you. Okay, got and, it. And bad deeds will go punished. And... Sure. Yeah, so that's the short story. This 1945 film is actually the first adaptation of this short story. Okay. Yeah. So unlike previous productions of Val Luton's that we've looked at, RKO now had Luton on something of a tighter leash under the auspices of executive producer Jack Gross, who had come over to RKO from Universal and did not care for Luton's films and gave the producer his lowest RKO budget yet, $125,000. Oh. Robert Wise would return to direct his third film now as a director, all of which had been under Luton up to this point. This would be his last collaboration with Luton as he moved on to bigger and better projects at RKO, thanks to the push to his career that Luton had given him. Luton adapted the Stevenson story to the screen himself. Initially, he wanted writer Michael Hogan to write the screenplay. Uh, Hogan had written Rebecca but RKO would not approve Hogan's rate. So he collaborated instead with British thriller author Philip MacDonald. Now, MacDonald wrote detective novels, primarily, and as a screenwriter, he had been a major contributor to the Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto series. That makes sense if you're a thriller person. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Luton broke a previous rule of his and gave himself an on-screen credit, as writer, albeit under the pseudonym Carlos Keith, which he had previously used for some of his pulp fiction writing in the early 1930s. I mean, he deserves it if he's doing the bulk of the writing work. Mm. In the past, he's been like more of a collaborator with people hired to do the script, so it made sense that he would remain anonymous. Mm-hmm. Cinematography for the film was by Robert DeGrasse, who had previously shot The Leopard Man for Luton. And then we have music by Roy Webb and editing by J.R. Whitridge and art direction by Albert D'Agostino and Walter Keller, all standard members of Luton's team. Mm-hmm. Now, Gross and Luton clashed repeatedly during production, uh, partially over the budget and partially over creative direction. Gross wanted more gore in the film and like more explicit, like showing you what's going on kind of horror. 
while uh, Luton was already battling the Breen office, which was insisting that there should be no explicit depiction of grave robbing or dissecting of human corpses. You know, the the premise of the story. Yeah. Yeah. So Luton had to struggle to find a happy medium between Gross insisting that he show everything and the Breen office insisting that this movie shouldn't be made at all. I do appreciate that the guy whose last name is Gross is pushing for more Gross score. Right. Now, Gross had the notion of bringing in Bella Lugosi to join the cast Mm. to increase the movie's marquee value. Yeah. And so Luton wrote this small part of Joseph, not a character in the Stevenson short story, in order to accommodate Lugosi into the movie. Now, prior to this, Lugosi had appeared in a mystery comedy for Paramount called One Body Too Many. Now, this film would be the last time that Lugosi and Karloff would share the screen together. Mm. Karloff, for his part, was more nervous about acting opposite Henry Daniel, an accomplished English stage and film actor. Born in England in 1894, Daniel began acting on stage in 1913. He made his way to Broadway by 1921 and appeared in his first film in 1929. So a big deal. Yeah, certainly an experienced guy. You know, and if you look at his credits, he's one of those British actors where it's easier to just, like, say, oh, he was in everything than to try to say what he's been in. Yeah. Uh, He appeared in nearly 100 films in his career, most often in villainous roles, including The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex in 1939, uh, The Great Dictator in 1940, he was uh, garbage. (laughs) Sorry, I still laugh at that fucking name. That's so good. Jane Eyre in 1943, he was Mr. Brocklehurst. Oh, and later as Professor Moriarty in 1945's The Woman in Green. Shooting for the Body Snatcher ran from October 25th to November 17th. Upon completion, Luton and Karloff went straight into completing Isle of the Dead, which then wrapped shooting in December. Karloff adored working with Luton, and is said to have credited Luton with restoring his soul as an actor, so to speak. Wow. Yeah, he felt that he had just, like, gotten really burnt out and, like, there was no point to, like, doing things anymore and, like, everything was just kind of so dumb and stupid and, like, working with Luton just kind of, like, gave him the, like, passion for the craft back. That's great. The Body Snatcher was released on May 25th, 1945. It received good critical reviews and was successful at the box office, primarily thanks to its very low cost buying Luton and Karloff a bit more time at RKO. Today, it is available on DVD in the Val Luton Horror Collection from Warner Home Video, or on Blu-ray from Shout Factory, and it is currently streaming on the Criterion channel. Yeah. Well, folks, find a copy, watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Body Snatcher from 1945, directed by Robert Wise. See you on the other side, everybody.
welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Body Snatcher from 1945, directed by Robert Wise. Ben, what did you think of this one? I really liked this. It's always so great when we can get a good one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really like this. I think it's Luton's best movie in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. Robert Wise acquits himself very well. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's impressive with this movie, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I was surprised by how gruesome it was at times. Yeah. It's much less ambiguous than previous Luton movies. Um, It still, you know, does a lot of that, put things in the shadows and let you kind of imagine more than what you're seeing, but you're always sure of what's going on. Yeah, and it still had, like, the same quality of cinematography, sound Mm -hmm. design, writing that Mm -hmm. we've kind of come to expect from Luton's films. Yes. So speaking of the writing, uh, let's talk about the story, which is much expanded, I feel, versus the short story. Expanded? Um, Yes. That we kind of knew that would be happening with the addition of Joseph as Mm -hmm. a character, but yeah, I can definitely go into it. So when the film opens, um, we get the date of 1831. So this would be after the Burke and Hare murders that I talked about in the context setting, but one year before the Anatomy Act coming in. Right, yeah, so it's... You know, we're still still in prime time for body snatching. Yeah, exactly, but we can do a lot of references to Burke and Hare to, like, set the scene. Exactly. So we open on this man who we later learn is named Donald Fettes, and he's sitting in a graveyard, um, just hanging out, and he's kind of lamenting that, um, for personal reasons, he has to head back home and stop being a med student. And he meets this woman who is grieving for her son, um, who is recently buried, and, uh, you know, this son has such a loyal dog that the dog hangs by the grave. Mm-hmm. Won't, won't leave the gravesite. No. It's a, like a little Scottish Terrier or something, right? Yeah, it's a cute little dog. <laughs> but don't get too attached, audience. Next, we meet a cabbie named Gray dropping off a Mrs. Marsh and her paraplegic daughter Georgina at a Dr. Wolf McFarland's. And Gray is Boris Karloff, it, yes. it should be said. Um, Fetty's is played by Russell Wade, who I didn't mention in the intro, because the only thing really worth mentioning about him is that he was Miriam back in The Ghost Ship. Yeah, so he's worked with Luton before. Now, Mrs. Marsh has come to Dr. McFarland's because she's been told he is the only one who could possibly help Georgina walk again. Upon examination, McFarland concurs, but declines to do the operation as he's preoccupied with teaching. It's at this point that Fetty's comes in. You know, he does get some interaction with Mrs. Marsh and Georgina. But then afterwards, he explains to McFarland that he has to leave and stop being a med student. And McFarland says, nonsense. You're one of my best pupils. You're going to stay. Be my assistant, and your pay will cover tuition and room and board here in my house, where I also teach. Everything's done in this big house. Yeah. The movie only had (laughs) (laughs) $125,000. So that night, Freddy's has his first assistant task, and it's to receive a cadaver from Gray. 
Now, before this, we had seen Grey enter the cemetery from the opening bit, mm-hmm. smash the uh, shovel down and hear a yelp from the dog, mm-hmm. and then digging sounds. So, we know whose body this is, and we know that that dog was not long for this world. Yeah. Freddy's is kind of shaken from this business of basically purchasing a cadaver from a body snatcher. Mm-hmm. But McFarlane explains to Freddy's that this is just the way of things. Like, we need cadavers in order to teach. You know, it's dirty business, but this is what's kind of necessary. Yeah, and I think McFarlane's sort of stressing, like, this guy was dead already. Like, there's nothing more that this body can do, but if it can teach, then we have doctors who can prevent people from dying like this kid died. Because they're operating in this, like, legal gray zone that still exists, where it's like, well, we're not killing people like Burke and Hare. So the next day, Mrs. Marsh goes to Fetty's and asks him to intervene with McFarlane. Please, please, he's the only one who can help my daughter. Surely you must be able to persuade him some way. That day, Fetty's and McFarlane head to a local bar, um, a local pub, and they actually run into Gray, who is very cordial, calls them his friends, has a, a neat nickname for McFarlane called Toddy. Um, so yes, his name is Todd D. McFarlane. Yeah, that, that got a laugh out of me. <laughs> but it's clear that there's a lot of history between McFarlane and Gray. It's at this point that Fetty's asks McFarlane about Georgina's surgery, and Gray seems to imply that he would blackmail McFarlane unless he were to operate. In the morning, McFarlane backs out again, his rationale to Fetty's is like, well, it would be super complicated because I have to operate on the spine and no one's ever done that before and I would need to practice on something and gain knowledge and we don't have any specimens right now. So Fetty's goes to Gray's house and asks him to find a specimen so that Fetty's can use the specimen as like, see, here's a specimen you can practice on, please do the surgery for Georgina. Now, throughout the film up to this point, there's been this girl singing on the street, uh, kind of wandering through the film. And we see her again when Freddy's leaves Gray's apartment, basically. Gray's eyes follow the girl, and then as she walks down a street, Gray in his cab and horse follow behind, and suddenly, in the dark, we hear her voice muffled and silent. Mm-hmm. Freddy's is super excited when Gray has a specimen ready for him so quickly, but then is appalled when he realizes it's the singing woman. Yeah. Freddy's is like, you've murdered her, and Gray's like, you can't prove anything. How do you know? And McFarlane says the same thing in the morning, like, as far as we know, she could have had a seizure, Mm -hmm. and that's how she got brought here. Besides, if you went to the police... You could be an accomplice. Yeah. You signed for the body. Mm-hmm. Now, the conversation between Fetty's and McFarlane of Fetty's accusing Gray of murder is overheard by Joseph Bella Lugosi, who is McFarlane's other assistant, but really just a janitor. Yeah, he's like a servant. He's just like a household servant. Mm-hmm. So we cut to Georgina's operation, and it appears to be a success, but the girl still can't walk. It's implied that it's kind of, you know, her fear of it, but because they can't confirm if that's the case, McFarlane believes that this has been a failure. Upset, he goes to the local pub, where Gray 
is around, and as McFarlane is drunk, Grey bugs him about their shared past, saying that McFarlane is basically tainted by those dealings. He can't be a healer when he's done such gruesome things, um, like being beside Grey, digging up the bodies, that sort of thing. And yeah. it's at that point that Grey explains a little bit that, like, they were both associates of Knox. McFarlane was the assistant to Knox. Yeah, and there's sort of an implication that, like, doing the dissections and, like, teaching students and doing what he's been doing, Gray sort of implies that McFarlane, like, has the knowledge about the human body, but he has no capacity for actual, like, healing because he's only ever, like, worked on dead things, basically. Yeah. So Gray heads home, and um, Joseph comes to meet him. And Joseph's plan is to blackmail Gray about the woman's murder. Gray kills Joseph, because that's what happens when you try to blackmail a murderer. Alone in his own home, too. Like, yeah. meet him at a coffee shop or something, Joseph. <laughs> like. uh, so Gray delivers Joseph's body to McFarlane as a gift, but also as, like, a way to blackmail him a little bit, too. Yeah, because Gray's been trying to, like, hold over their past as a way to blackmail McFarlane. And McFarlane points out, like, they hung Burke and they ran Hare out of town, but, like, nothing happened to Knox. And I am also a rich doctor. So if you want to go to the police and be like, hey, I've been delivering bodies for this guy, they're going to hang you, not me. But now that it's McFarlane's own servant who's one of these dead, dissected people, it's kind of like, yeah, there's no way you're getting out of this one. Mm-hmm. Now, McFarlane has a housekeeper named Meg, and she confides to Fetty's that she's actually also McFarlane's secret wife, and explains how McFarlane and Gray both were involved with Knox and um, the Burke and Hare trial, and basically explains that McFarlane paid Gray to testify and take the heat off McFarlane um, to basically protect himself. So... That's also what Gray is holding over him. Yeah, absolutely. Now that Gray has delivered Joseph and has this yet another thing lording over his head, McFarlane goes to Gray to basically try to bribe him to leave Edinburgh and to just leave him alone forever. Gray explains that, no, I, I rather enjoy having power over you and having power over a gentleman as a poor guy. And they fight with McFarlane beating Gray to death. So now he'll truly be rid of Grey. In the morning, Fetty's runs into Mrs. Marsh and Georgina, and turns out she can walk. Great, she just uh, needed to do it. Fetty's runs to McFarlane to share the news. Turns out he's off at another town, trying to sell Grey's horse and carriage and kind of cover up the tracks a bit. So Fetty's follows McFarlane. Upon hearing the news, McFarlane rejoices. And truly, yes, finally, I'm free of grace. See, I can heal. Yeah, it's almost like in McFarlane's mind, he's thinking that, like, the girl can walk because Gray is dead. Like, it was like a curse lifted yeah. off of him. At the pub they're at, some grieving townsfolk come in, and they overhear that they just buried the woman's sister. And, ah, here's a freshly dug grave. McFarlane plans to steal it himself like the good old days, and Fetty's feels he has no choice but to assist. 
Yeah, you know, cut out the middleman. So as they ride home in a storm, it's just drenching down, um, they have the body wrapped up and between them, McFarlane starts to hear Gray's voice taunting him, and he becomes convinced that the body isn't in fact a woman's. So he stops, he looks behind the coverings, and it's Gray's face that he sees. Fetty's had gotten off the carriage in order to grab the light to see the face, and McFarlane, seeing Gray's face, freaks out, the horse freaks out, and they are now careening through mountains. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the highlands. Yeah, in the storm, and the carriage crashes. Fetty's catches up to the crash, he checks McFarlane's body, and it's clear that he is dead. Then he checks the cadaver, and it is a woman's face mm-hmm. that we see. So then we uh, cut to Fetty's like, wandering through the storm along the road, trying to get home. And we see a quote from Hippocrates, uh, who you may know from the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, and the quote is along the lines of, It is through error that man tries and rises. All roads of learning begin in darkness and go out into the light. Mm-hmm. The end. So as I said, like, this film was surprisingly gruesome, particularly Lugosi's murder scene. Mm-hmm. Um, when Karloff kills the dog and when Karloff is stalking the singer. Yeah, and again, like, it's it's still done in a Luton-esque style. I mean, the killing of the dog, we only see Karloff's shadow as it approaches the grave, and then and we, we see... And we hear growling from the dog. Like, we right. don't see it again, but we hear that it is there. And we see the shadow, you know, raise the shovel and then bring it down, and the growling sort of stops with a yelp. So it's not, like, on camera, but it's really close to being on camera. And then with the girl, you know, it's one of those excellent examples of Luton sound design, where for the first quarter of the movie, the girl's singing is always heard whenever the characters are on the streets of Edinburgh. And throughout the entire movie, the clip-clop of... Gray's horse on the cobblestone streets is also a recurring sound element. And so we get this great shot of the girl walks into the darkness, you know, the carriage goes into the darkness after her, and so we have both sets of sounds, and then we only have, you know, the singing stops, and then we just have the clip-clop. And the thing about Lugosi's murder is not only do we see that murder on screen, um, and he's, he's basically suffocated to death. Yeah. Um, which Gray refers to as burking him. Yeah, which and, was interesting. Uh, but then Gray takes the body to, you know, McFarland's, as we said, and dumps it into, like, a vat of formaldehyde to, like, so it'll keep, basically, until McFarland can get a look at it. And so we just get this, like, really gruesome shot of them, like, pulling... Lugosi's body out of this formaldehyde. And I think this is the first time that we see, like, strangulation on screen, or suffocation, really, on screen that's not done with, like, you know, the victim being off screen and us seeing the killer's face, or being done with, like, a scarf or something. Like, it is Karloff's hand placed over Lugosi's mouth and nose. Yeah, and it's also, like, a reasonable length of time. Like, Lugosi struggles for a long time before finally dying, right? It it really shows you kind of how hard it is to strangle someone. It's not this 
green office approved like really toothless thing where it's just like oh yeah you just gotta like wrap a scarf around someone's uh throat and then they're instantly dead yeah i think the reason they get away with it at least in that scene is it's pretty much all in shadow like you can't really see what's going on but you know what's going on it also probably helped that even though joseph has come to blackmail gray the way that Gray kind of puts Joseph at ease enough to get close enough to kill him is by, like, talking Joseph into becoming his uh, partner in the Resurrection Man business, which probably morally tainted Joseph just enough that the Breen office was okay with, like, killing him. Yeah, he also gets him drunk. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that scene, I wanted there to be a little bit more energy from the ghosty, but it wasn't quite there. But I do have to say that the energy between Karloff and Henry Daniel really worked. Yeah. So before we talk a bit more about Henry Daniel, who plays McFarlane, I want to just address Lugosi for yeah, a moment. Yeah. Because unfortunately, he is more or less a non-presence in this movie. Like, it's even a running gag that no one notices him when he's in the room. Um, Lugosi looks very tired and very old. He looks... 20 years older than he actually is. Yeah. Um, you know, if you told me he was a man in his 80s, I would be like, yeah. Like, he looks like my grandfather did before he died. And he's, you know, 60-something here. During his big scene with Karloff, uh, where it's the two of them talking right before the murder, it kind of struck me that their two roles in this movie function almost as allegory for where they were in their careers. Mm-hmm. So, like, Gray, he's relatively poor relatively humble but he has this position of power in his own little world and he takes pride in that you know like his motivation is i am the king of this little world that i have created meanwhile joseph is in the lowest position in the story's hierarchy you know he's just mcfarland's house servant And he has to do whatever he can to eke out, like, what money he can get. To the point where, like, he's not so much blackmailing Gray about the murders for any kind of, like, moral reason. Because we see that once Gray promises him more money to help him, he's totally good with doing that. And even then, he gets betrayed and screwed over, right? So, you know, you compare that to, like, Karloff, who may have been stuck in the horror genre, but at least he was always at major studios and always in the starring role. While Lugosi, all of his stuff is down at Poverty Row, and if he does get to appear in a studio picture, the role is minuscule, like this one, where he's being used for his name, not necessarily his abilities as an actor. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, and also just the way... So Gray obviously comes out on top during that fight, Mm -hmm. and Karloff has managed to come out fairly unscathed from, like, being pigeonholed as a horror actor. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, again, that, like, Gray's situation isn't fantastic. He's still, like, a poor dude who has to make his money stealing bodies, Uh, but he's still above Joseph. You know, and that's, to me, very reminiscent. The thing with Karloff in this movie, as Grey, is as far as I am concerned, this is the best Karloff performance we've seen in a decade. Since either 
1936's Walking Dead or maybe 1935's Black Room. Yeah, I would agree. It's really good to see him play something other than a mad scientist. And he does, and has always done, a very good job of being genteel on one hand, but mean and cruel on the other. And in his mad scientist roles, especially the Columbia ones, the way that was usually played was he was a nice, sweet old doctor, but he gets screwed over, so now he wants revenge, right? Yeah. So both parts of the personality are kind of true, but I feel and like... And also has, like, this clear moment of when he switches. Right. But I feel like Karloff is best served as an actor by scripts that let the sort of charm be a mask for the cruelty, You know, he's so good in those scenes where he's smiling and saying, like, Ah, yes, my friend, you know, Dr. McFarlane, Master Fetties, it's so good to see you. And you can tell he's just smiling through his teeth at them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when he's able to kind of play and go between those two versions Mm -hmm. of a character and of the way he portrays them, it's always really good. And I also really like movies where he is able to speak. <laughs> well, as like, where he's like given have good monologues. Yes, where and where he's given dialogue this good because yes. Karloff's just got such a great voice that you can just listen to him talk forever. Absolutely. It's really interesting because they do eventually like explain his backstory with Gray, but there's just enough stuff left unsaid that you're still kind of like left filling in the blanks in your own head. This is a, like, brief note, but I just wanted to say this movie has an absolutely fantastic musical score from Roy Webb. I mean, Roy Webb's done a good job on all the Luton films, but this one just really stood out to me with, like, the lushness of the score and the way it weaves in diegetic and non-diegetic music. You know, the, the, the Street Singers song, which after she dies becomes, like, a leitmotif in the score... Um, for certain characters. Also, Gray sings to Joseph, like, a drinking folk song about Burke and Hare that then, like, gets used in the score to represent certain scenes. It's all very, very well done. Yeah, same with the sound design. Um, You kind of talked about it already, but Gray's appearance is always preceded by you hearing the clip-clop of his horse. That's how Fetty's nose... Oh, a body's arrived, I have to go downstairs. Yeah. Um, it has this kind of neat echoey effect. Um, and also, uh, it's that clip-clopping of the horse that encourages Georgina to actually get up out of her chair um, because she's trying to catch the eye of uh, Gray's horse. Mm-hmm. Now, no one, I think, else in the cast knows that it's Gray's horse, but she's like talking about seeing the white horse and wanting to wave hi to it. Yeah, because she met Gray and the horse when Gray brings her to McFarlane's house at the beginning. Yeah. The irony there is that at that point in the story, that has to be McFarlane driving the cab out of town to go sell it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, there's also some great moments of sound design when McFarlane hears Gray's voice taunting him during the ride home. Yeah, at the very end of the movie. Yeah, um, just hearing... Karloff go, Toddy, Toddy. Never be rid of me. Never be rid of me. Never be rid of me. Which sounded like it was in the rhythm of the horse galloping. Yes. It was so good. 
Speaking of sound design, there is, of course, a Luton bus here. It's when <laughs> Fetty's goes to see Gray for the first time, and he basically just gets spooked by uh, Gray's horse, just, like, neighing out of nowhere. Yeah, but it didn't... Um, I think they've kind of figured out that with the the bus scene in Cat People, they had a lot of tension leading up to it. Yes. Here, it there wasn't the tension leading up to the horse neighing, but the sudden jump caused you to feel tension for the rest of the scene. Mm-hmm, yeah. So it's like almost like a reverse usage, yeah. uh, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. I will say, it was nice to have a doctor uh, talking about, you know, I have to go against society's laws, and the society needs to change, not I. And it's like, yeah, man, the laws gotta change. They will change in a year. Right. It was kind of neat to have a doctor like that well it was it's a good irony too because like mcfarlane tries to say to gray like i don't need your services you know one day the law is going to change and i'm not going to have to deal with people like you and we know that the laws are going to change but i think this is a good time to then segue into talking about mcfarlane and uh henry daniel who plays him mcfarlane is a fantastically complex character and the script admirably lets him be multi-dimensional. You know, he does bad things and he's occasionally a little bit cruel, a little bit cold, but he he's doing them for the right reasons and we know that he's doing them for the right reasons because we see the results of all of that. You know, he does fix Georgina. There's a lot of talk, weird talk in the movie about like oh, you know, McFarlane's knowledge isn't enough because you have to have, like, the the soul of a healer. It's not enough to know the mathematics of anatomy. You need the poetry of medicine or whatever. And it's like, no, he healed her. It's fine. You, It's science. You just do the thing. <laughs> you don't need, like, God to also bless you at the same time or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, like, we know he's a good doctor, you know, and once he's rid of Grey, he's like, yeah, you know, we're going to do great things, it's going to be so much better now, but also... (laughs) Still need those bodies to do that. Right, and so it allows for a much more complex mentor-mentee relationship with Betty's than what we got with Russell Wade and the captain in Ghost Ship, where it basically goes from like, hey, he's my mentor and he really likes me and we get along, straight to like, oh, but actually he's a horrible psychopathic murderer man, you know, and then it's, it's very either or. Um, and I think it allows you to see McFarlane as a bit of a tragic figure, yes. as well as um, being, I feel like monstrous is too strong of a word, but being... He's too, compromised. Too cold right. to the world. Like, you know, when he declines to do the surgery for Georgina the first time, he's like, no, I'm too busy teaching. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm, or you could turn this into a learning opportunity for your students. Alternatively... There's also the feeling, and this comes from like other characters kind of talking about it, that because he's been a teacher for so long, he's worried that he doesn't actually have the skills anymore to be a doctor. Yeah, he's he's clearly very riddled with self-doubt. And it's like, well, if I turn down these surgeries, I don't have to confront whether I can do it or not, right? Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is like Meg talks about the idea that like a stain was placed upon him because he worked with Knox. And this idea that, like, well, you learned the medicine from an evil source, so your your knowledge is therefore, like, tainted in some way. Yeah. Um, she actually encourages Freddy's to not continue his studies 
to not be involved. Otherwise, that stain will continue. Mm -hmm. I think you're totally on the money calling him a tragic figure. I mean, for one thing, there's the irony that, like, his death is essentially caused by something that would be unnecessary within, like, a year. Yeah. You know, once the Anatomy Act comes in. Um, And he's also, like, all, you know, good tragic figures trapped by his past, you know, by these old habits, these old ways of doing things. Um, Obviously by Grey, you know, as you've said, he has this chance at the end of the movie, once Grey is dead, to mend his ways, and it's like... He's still stuck in it. Yeah, and it's like, nope, we gotta gotta keep having bodies. And I think... I think that's the reason why Grey continues to haunt him. It's not he's haunting McFarlane because McFarlane murdered Grey. It's he's haunting him because McFarlane has taken Grey's place in, you know, the the power org structure of what's going on. <laughs> um, it's It's really interesting, and it tells us that, you know, his fate at the end of the movie is being caused by his own inability to mend his ways and change and get over the past, right? And that's the best tragic characters are the ones for whom they are the architect of their own downfall. Mm-hmm. Additionally, I really liked that Meg was shown to be still, like, passionately in love with him, right? Yeah, she says, like, I'm stuck here because I'm in love with him. Yeah, and whenever she gets a scene alone with him, you know, they embrace, like, their fucking... Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara on the poster (laughs) of Gone with the Wind. But she also knows that he has slipped into this darkness, uh, so much so that she, like, warns people away from him and and really bemoans her state uh, with him. But to show them as still being really in love is so much more interesting than if the movie had done, like, the obvious thing and tried to, like, telegraph to us that McFarlane's no good by showing that he was, like, really abusive and mean to Meg, right? Which he never is. Yeah. Um, and, and so la- allowing McFarlane to be multidimensional was just, like, such a good breath of fresh air. And, like, ultimately, even though Karloff is obviously the most magnetic character in the movie because he's the villain, um, I would say that this movie, more than anything else, is a character study of McFarlane and absolutely and the way that he's sort of caught between like the goodness of Fetty's on one end and the evil of Grey on the other and it's like he can kind of go either way you know do you want to return to the purity of who you were before or do you want to keep going down this path and he chooses keep going down this path right yeah well once you have set ways you know and he's not wrong as well, like, he needs those bodies. Yeah, like, yeah. That's why the law is going to change. Yes, I agree that this movie can be taken as a character study of McFarlane, um, but I think in, in classic Luton fashion, um, this film is trying to be about something more. What this film's something more is, is class. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. You've kind of laid out, like, this power structure, mm-hmm. but in terms of the class structure... McFarlane's at the top. His wife, Meg, is secret because she's not as high class as he is. Yeah, so like, she's... Like, I get the feeling that McFarlane has gentry. She's, um, like, a, I guess a commoner um, in, like, the same cl- social class, perhaps, as Fetty's, which is why Fetty's was going to have to leave school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then below those two are Gray and Joseph. Mm-hmm. Throughout the film, we are faced with these walls 
of Edinburgh. Now, in some quick research about Edinburgh and walls, I couldn't find anything of this as like an accurate depiction of Edinburgh. So we constantly see certain characters on only one side of the wall. On the upper side of the wall, kind of at the top, is Mrs. Marsh and Georgina. Um, it's over the wall that Georgina wants to look to try to see the horse. It's also where McFarlane lives, where Fetty's therefore lives as well. On the other side of the wall at the bottom, and it's almost like this like big, long, like high wall, and we're at the very bottom. This is where we are always introduced to the singing girl. Mm-hmm. This is where um, Gray lives. His mm-hmm. apartment is just down the street. And the only people who seem to like uh, go between are Fetty's and Gray. Right. Uh, Gray to deliver bodies, Fetty's to demand bodies, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess uh, other people go through, but I mean, in terms of like... I get what you're saying. Like, there's a thing there where there are certain liminal people who can cross that space, right? It's not like an official like thing where there's guards posted and it's like, you must have this income to pass, but it's a, it's a metaphorical thing. Absolutely. And the reason, you know, Gray can pass is because he wields power over McFarlane, it's a way where, even though he is traditionally below him, he can be above him. And, you know, this is why that's more important to him than the money, right? He can't be bought off because he gets more joy out of just being able to lord him over a little bit. And then, you know, Fetty's can cross because he is from a poor family, and by becoming a doctor, that's going to buy him basically into respectability. And because he's at school, he's sort of, you know, stuck between the two worlds at the moment. Absolutely. Um, the only other place that's more liminal is the pub that they go to. Yes. Um, which I don't remember the official title, but the... Hobbs Public House. Hobbs Public House for, and this is along the lines I'm paraphrasing, for common folk and gentry or something like that. Yeah, it, it says... For gentlemen and commonality. Yeah. And there's very explicitly, like, two sections of the bar, because when they drink there the first time, like, Gray's sitting, and he gestures them to sit with him, and he says, you know, like, come sit with the commonality. Yeah. And the second time we're at the bar, Gray has to go over to the gentleman's section where McFarlane's already drinking. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, like... There are these explicit indications that this film is talking about class. I don't think it, it's trying... I don't know if it's trying to say anything in particular, but I think it, it's just underlining the class differences so you have another layer to kind of work through in this film, especially when you consider how much McFarlane and Meg are in love and apparently married, but no, she has to pretend to basically be his house servant. Right. Or like the fact that class is the, you know, the center of Gray's motivations yes. and, and these things. And, you know, and McFarlane clings to his high class a lot where he, he insists that Gray call him Dr. McFarlane. And instead Gray addresses him with this very familiar Nickname, you know, it's it's not even Todd, it's, yeah. it's Toddy, right? Yeah, As and if, it's like, where did Todd come from? His first name is Wolf. That's an interesting question. I, it's one of those things where I wonder if this is like some sort of British slang thing that we don't understand, <laughs> where it's like, oh yeah. To me, it feels like, oh, he sure likes his hot toddies, we'll call him Toddy. You know, like a friend, oh, you had to be there for the type of joke. 
Mm, sure. But regardless, there's the implication that, like, he shouldn't be addressing him so familiarly because they are on these different class levels. He should be calling him doctor or sir or whatever, right? Yeah, and there's a few times where Gray uses um, an honorific to either dig at people mm-hmm. or to... No, it's obvious to dig. Um, because, like, when he first meets Fetties, he says Master Fetties. Right, which is correct, because he's going to school. He's not a doctor yet. And then after receiving, I think it's the singer's body, mm-hmm. he calls Fetties doctor. Yeah, as if you've earned being a doctor because I've now murdered for you. And yeah. that's what doctors do. They get people yeah. like me to kill people. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, like, cool things like that going on in this movie. Uh, you know, it, it's maybe redundant at this point to say, but of course there are great shadow-drenched cinematography here. Oh, of course. Um, which helps create mood. I think it also helps sell the time period. Like, one of the things that is a pet peeve of mine is, and this is more true of older movies, and it's it's there for a technical reason, but, like, when we see these period dramas and everything is lit so bright, and it's like, Where's all this light coming from? There's no electric light. Um, and yeah, like, this film, like, obviously it's not, but it feels like it's lit with natural lighting. Like yeah. a Barry Lyndon situation. Right. It's it's not, but it's just, it allows rooms to get drenched into shadow, or parts of streets to get drenched into shadow, where there isn't light sources. It allows the light sources to be limited. The other thing that allowing everything to be drenched in darkness like that does is maybe help disguise what problems the sets might have had. Yeah. Because, like, obviously, they're doing things like reusing, like, street sets from, like, 1939's Hunchback of Notre Dame in order to do Edinburgh. They're reusing, like, the house from Curse of the Cat People as uh, McFarlane's house. You know, They so- even have stock footage at the beginning to help sell that we're in Scotland, we're in a city. Mm-hmm. And so you get the sense that, like, the darkness is also helping to, like, cover up the seams, you know, a little bit. Which is, of course, a clever thing to do. And a classic Luton move. Yeah, to use your your limitations to your advantage. So, unless you have anything else you'd like to add, where would you like to rank this film? Well, Sarah, I've got a pretty small range. Okay. It is also pretty high. Okay. So, I was thinking about good... Karloff performances, and my attention was drawn to The Black Cat, which is at number seven. Sure. I think The Black Cat is better, not only because I think Karloff has a more interesting part in that movie, even though, you know, Grey is a great part for Karloff, but also the Karloff v. Lugosi conflict is on much more even ground than it is in this movie. Yeah. Um, So I prefer Black Cat. So I made that my ceiling. I thought maybe this could go above Invisible Man, because while Invisible Man has a lot of great menace to it, it also has a lot of comic relief that can serve to uh, help lighten the mood from time to time that Body Snatcher doesn't do. Then I worked my way down. You know, we have a picture of Dorian Gray uh, from a couple weeks ago at number nine, uh, Son of Frankenstein at 10, which is like another great shadowy, expressionistic kind of movie. And then there's Frankenstein 11, which is, you know, another seminal Karloff performance. It's the movie that made him famous. It's also like a little 
in terms of Frank. The original Frankenstein is a little bit toothless. Um, well, that's because he had to take out his dentures, right? Uh, this movie has a lot more bite to it. You know what you're afraid of in the original Frankenstein is the sins of the father will come back to roost, basically. Uh, Which is close to this in a little bit with like being tainted by your mentor. But also the other part of this movie is once you've entered into a deal with the devil, you can't control the devil, you know, is the other big thing here. Making the monster wasn't Henry's mistake, right? Henry's mistreating it. Right. Whereas entering into the deal with Grey was the mistake. Like you fucked up from day one. Um, so I kind of like this better than Frankenstein, to be honest. I think it's a better horror movie than Frankenstein is. So that's my range, uh, 8 to 11. Okay. So that's a little higher than mine. When I started looking at ranking this, I didn't look at past Karloff performances. I instead went to some past Luton films. Sure, that's a natural thing to do. And my eyes kind of settled on The Seventh Victim at number 26. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that film has some issues with editing, issues with directing. Now that's Mark Robeson, not Robert Wise. But I felt that The Body Snatcher could go above The Seventh Victim in terms of being a good horror movie. Yeah, I think, I think you identified kind of what's better about this than Seventh Victim. This is so much more like coherent and of a piece than Seventh Victim, which is... A great movie, but it's a little patchy. Yeah. Now, I will say that because Seventh Victim is set in, like, contemporary times, it feels like there's more bite to it than this. But Mm. in any case, working my way up from there, I found myself hitting around Fairman Maria at number 15. Mm. Because that film is about Nazis. Right. (laughs) And that's terrifying. Nazis as death. And trying to outwit him, which to think about, like, entering into a deal with the devil, you know, at least there's a bit more agency in Fairman Maria, so maybe that makes it, like, less of a horror movie, because she finds a way to survive. Yeah, it's got a happy ending. Yeah, whereas McFarlane doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was kind of my my range there, 15 to 26. Um, But I definitely see, see where you're coming from with looking at Above Frankenstein. Because, like, Above Fairman Maria, you have Murders in the Zoo, Dracula, Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein. Right. And I've found this area, kind of 10 to 13-ish, a bit of a sticky wicket, because part of the reason why these films rank so high is their iconic value. Yes. But now we're getting to, like, 10 years after these films were made. And we're getting to a point where, like, horror is starting to get good enough at what it's doing that it can really compete with iconic value. Exactly. Yeah, so I I wasn't sure how to feel about that. Well, looking at that area in between our two ranges, like, I think with Fairman Maria, I, I totally get where you're coming from with, like, the SS stuff, but also what we've already said about the endings. Yes. That this has the darker ending, um, which is... Fine, by the way. I'm not saying Fairman Maria should have a darker ending. It's much better that it doesn't uh, because of what it's trying to say and do. Absolutely. Above Fairman Maria, we have Murders in the Zoo, which is above it because it's a very chilling portrayal of domestic violence. 
But also, the thing that you forget about Murders in the Zoo is there is a very broad, slapsticky comic relief character in that Absolutely, movie. Absolutely, yeah. Above that, we have Dracula, which we we love for its mood and its atmosphere and like the particular kind of slow-paced horror that it's trying to do. And obviously, it's Lugosi's big best role. But you can't get around the fact that Dracula is a movie where people talk about things happening rather than things happening. If you think about the way that the body snatcher talks about things happening, right? it's done in a way that feels very engaging. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just Karloff's voice, but because we're getting shots that are like over the shoulder, shadowy, you know, we're show- shown reflections in mirrors and like close-ups and stuff like that rather than proscenium style, it feels mm-hmm. more engaging. I think it's more than just Karloff's voice. Um, because other people have a way of speaking and talking about things and avoiding talking about things. That's the real thing, is yeah. like the the exposition stuff in this movie leaves gaps yeah. for your mind to fill in, whereas in Dracula... It's about, let's explain this. Right, and it's also about, like, let's say all these things because we want to have it be spooky and scary, but not show them because that would be going too far, right? Absolutely. It's not about using dialogue to scare the audience more. It's about using dialogue to scare the audience less. Yeah. So now we're at the Frankensteins. So it's it's really tough to put anything above Bride of Frankenstein because it's such a well-regarded movie. There are so many people who consider it this big masterpiece. But we have put 11 movies above Bride of Frankenstein, <laughs> including the original Frankenstein, which, I mean, I'm surprised we don't get angry comments about that all the time because Bride is Better is the, like, mantra of everybody. My thing here is that, like, again... The Frankenstein movies are good, you know, the James Well Frankenstein movies are good, but the reason Sun went higher is because we identified that, like, the original Frankenstein movie is commentary, and Bride is almost satire, and, you know, Sun, on the other hand, is trying to actually scare you. My feeling is that the Body Snatcher should go below Son of Frankenstein above the original Frankenstein. Kind of for those reasons that you've just said. Now, the reason I'm thinking below Son of Frankenstein is that film had to do so much. Yeah, it has a lot of moving parts going on. And also, it was like the first horror movie in six years. And, you know, it it handles... It has a lot of major characters that it handles equally well, right? And it finds a way to balance, like, black comedy with horror, with gore, um... I don't think there's any black comedy in Body Snatcher. Oh, there I... might be some, like, <laughs> kind of like, oh, but, like, not in the same way. It might just be, like, the tone of voice that Karloff uses yes, to say absolutely. things. Because yes. I certainly got the feeling of black comedy in this movie. But it might just be, like, the <laughs> way that Karloff says everything as if it's, like, a private joke between him and the other person. Yeah, I, I think so. Okay, uh, so... Let's do that. Let's say that The Body Snatcher uh, enters the list at number 11 between Son of Frankenstein and Frankenstein, breaking up the three Frankenstein movies that we have all in a row there. Uh, So that's The Body Snatcher, 1945, directed by Robert Wise. 
If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, and you can also find an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can submit your case through our Ask box on Tumblr, through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talking to us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and listen to us on your podcasting app of choice. We would really love it if you do listen on Apple Podcasts, if you gave us a rating and a review. And we also would appreciate it if you kind of spread the word about the show, uh, whether that be to people online or people in your day-to-day life. It's October. It's spooky season. It's high time. And, you know, we said at the top of the show, Criterion Channel just threw on a bunch of classic horror movies. And it's like, well, which one do I watch? And it's like, well... You know, check out the Scream Scene list. What, what do they think is good, you know? Watch along with these episodes. It's like, you have that friend that you've been trying to get into, like, classic movies, and they're like, yeah, I don't know, like, movies... They're black and white. Well, never... Uh, I don't color know. wasn't invented yet. And people, I don't understand. Like, they don't connect with me. I don't really get what's going on. It's like, well, you know, hey, there's this podcast, and they give you all the context, so you understand, like, oh, this movie was talking about this thing that made sense at the time. Telling other people about the show is great. Um, the other thing that we would really appreciate is if you checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Because again, it's October. So we're doing a lot of fun, cool things for October. Um, Sarah is putting out a serialized adaptation of Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla as an audiobook with music and sound effects... Yeah, I put up a little clip teaser on Twitter, and also right here! I was vexed and insulted at finding myself, as I conceived, neglected, and I began to whimper, preparatory to a hearty bout of roaring, when, to my surprise, I saw a solemn but very pretty face looking at me from the side of the bed. It was that of a young lady who was kneeling, with her hands under the coverlet. I looked at her with a kind of pleased wonder and ceased whimpering. She caressed me with her hands and lay down beside me on the bed and drew me towards her, smiling. I felt immediately delightfully soothed and fell asleep again. I was wakened by a sensation as if two needles ran into my breast very deep at the same moment and I cried loudly. The lady started back with her eyes fixed on me and then slipped down upon the floor and, as I thought, hid herself under the bed. I was now for the first time frightened, and I yelled with all my might and main. Nurse, nursery maid, housekeeper, all came running in, and, hearing my story, they made light of it, soothing me all they could meanwhile. But, child as I was, I could perceive that their faces were pale with an unwanted look of anxiety and I saw them look under the bed and about the room and peep under tables and pluck open cupboards, and the housekeeper whispered to the nurse, Lay your hand along that hollow in the bed. Someone did lie there. So sure as you did not, the place is still warm. Part one came out on Friday, 
but if you sign up at any level on the Patreon, you are going to get access to that uh, and all the other parts as they come out. The other thing that we're doing special for October is I'm going to do like a Scream Scene Unsolved on the life and death of Vera West, Universal Studios' um, head of the costume department. So that's going to be really fun. Um, the regular Patreon content is also still going to be coming out, so that's bonus audio at the $5 level, um, stories, essays, written content at the $10 level. Um, I'm hoping that we might get something from Sarah kind of about her reactions to the story, Carmilla, <laughs> after having uh, adapted it. It's gay. It's so gay, Ben. So that's... Uh, <laughs> it's so good. So that's patreon.com slash podcast to check all of that stuff out. So what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, I have some potentially bad news. Next week's movie, we're heading back to Universal, and it is for the final entry in the Paula Dupree trilogy. <laughs> it's Jungle Captive, the sequel to Jungle Woman and Captive Wild Woman. It's directed by Harold Young. And it stars Vicky Lane as Paula Dupree because um, Aquafina just was like, no, fuck this. And was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And she took like a job uh, doing a Tarzan serial where she would get, you know, dialogue. I mean, that's fair. She did get dialogued in the last one. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Hopefully we'll be pleasantly surprised. Uh, don't, don't hold your breath. Bye. Bye.